Support for agricultural reporting on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the USU School of Veterinary Medicine, training the next generations of veterinarians to make One Health a reality and benefit for everyone. Details at vetmed.usu.edu. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. From the moment Americans first struck oil during the Civil War, they sought as God's special blessing on the nation and the source of America's mission to transform the world. Over the century that followed, oil transformed American business and politics, giving rise to an American exceptionalism that was deeply entwined with Christian faith. There's a new book out called Anointed with Oil, How Christianity and Crude Made Modern America. The author is prize-winning historian Darren Dochuk, who offers a major new history of the United States that places the relationship between religion and oil at the center of America's rise to global power in the 19th and 20th centuries. Yeah, Darren Docek is uh, associate professor of history at the University of Notre Dame. He's author previously of uh, Bible from Bible Belt to Sun Belt, which received uh, several prizes, and he's edited several other books in American religious history. He's born and raised in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada's oil capital. Lives now in South Bend, Indiana. Uh, Darren Docek, welcome to the program. Hi, Tom. Thanks for having me. Great to be with you. Good, to, good to have you with us. Uh, I want to start with you. Uh, you were raised in Edmonton. Um, that's an oil town. I was raised in an oil town, much smaller scale, out in eastern uh, Utah, Vernal, but uh, oh, really? very, very much infused with with oil. Still, a still an oil town. Um, that that's I guess maybe that's not why you wrote this book, but it certainly probably uh, in, infused it a little bit. Uh, I think so very much. Uh, it's it's in my DNA, and uh, this book, I think, has given me the chance to uh, revisit my roots, and uh, it certainly has been a pleasure to do so. Uh, but, you know, part of me always thought, uh, even when starting to write this book, that, that Alberta needed to to loom large in this story, uh, if not just for personal reasons, for, for scholarly ones as well. And so it has been good to, uh, to make my way back to Alberta, and, and I'm looking forward to actually uh, making a visit or two there to, to offer some talks here in the coming months. I wonder if we could talk at the front. Uh, you start the book with, uh, in fact, the prologue is titled The Strange Career of uh, Patillo or Patillo Higgins. He was called mm-hmm. Bud. Um, tell me a little bit about this fascinating character. Well, I actually stumbled across uh, the story of Higgins, his own interview uh, in the archives at University of Texas, and this is really at the very beginning of my research for this project. Uh, I was still uh, actually finishing my first book and looking at some sources there on Goldwater uh, and just saw this this interview, uh, the transcript for it, and took a pause from my research uh, on Goldwater uh, and uh, evangelical conservatives in California and read through the transcript and uh, found it just absolutely fascinating. It really is, uh, it's like the movie The Apostle. I mean, this, this is an individual who... Uh, grew up in, in hard times uh, in southeast Texas, was always looking for uh, a way to make a living and to not just make a living, but to make an impact on his society. He saw himself very much in, in kind of prophetic terms. Uh, he was a very curious uh, character uh, who uh, really operated, uh, you know, on his own terms very much, uh, was looking for, for a business uh, and uh, started in brick brick making. Uh, on that basis, traveled to Western Pennsylvania to look for uh, ways to use oil to to burn his kilns, 
to fuel them, and then uh, decided he was going to chase oil on its on its own. Uh, and he was convinced uh, that Southeast Texas uh, was rich in oil, and he would uh, proceed to, to start an oil company. Uh, went hunting for it. People were uh, sure that he was absolutely wrong. That he was he was. Uh, a failed individual, really, uh, and so he was determined to prove them wrong. And sure enough, uh, a point uh, of uh, uh, oil exploration on Spindletop, just outside Beaumont, Texas, uh, in 1901, would uh, r- result in in one of the first significant gushers in that region. And it's the exact location that Patil Higgins. Uh, predicted would uh, spew liquid gold. And uh, so he was very much at that point a prophet uh, accepted in his own land for the first time. And the other strain here that's uh, appeared in the book is uh, he was a rough character who found religion. Right. He, you know, he grew up, as I said, in, in kind of a rough section of uh, the state, uh, very much frontier. And as a young man, uh, indulged in some of the violence uh, of that region. Uh, he uh, would uh, harass black churches, for instance, and on the basis of that, uh, he uh, clashed with a, a local uh, police officer and, uh, in, in fact, killed the officer uh, in, a, in a duel, in a shootout. Uh, he was uh, acquitted of that, uh, and uh, but then uh, really thought he needed to turn his life around, and he attended a, uh, a revival meeting, uh, still, again, a young man, and uh, walked the sawdust trail to the front to, uh, to accept Christ as his personal savior. Uh, and thereafter, he very much saw his business again in vocational terms. This was a way not just to make money, but it was a way to transform his society, and, and again, very idealistic in that way, and very... Uh, devout in his evangelical beliefs, uh, in many ways to an extreme degree. Uh, but that would very much uh, drive him forward uh, into his, his oil career in the early 20th century. I was interested in another, uh, I can see why you chose him for the prologue, another theme that uh, would follow through the book. Uh, he, he appealed to the Rockefeller, to John D. Rockefeller for capital, right? And uh, Rockefeller mm-hmm. said, well, my geologists say there's nothing, <laughs> there's nothing there. Right. <laughs> Right. Well, Patilla Higgins, again, is, is not, he's exceptional, perhaps, in, in the intensity of his belief, uh, both in his own uh, ability to find oil uh, and in his religious beliefs. Uh, but he is not atypical entirely. Uh, there, there are countless uh, kind of wildcat oilmen of, of his ilk uh, that I chart through the first part of the book. And, you know, they're, they're forced to leave western Pennsylvania, which is dominated by uh, Rockefeller and Standard Oil. And uh, they make their way west of the Mississippi and are, you know, they're looking for, for crude in, in California and in Texas and uh, Oklahoma. And then, again, with Patilla Higgins' help, hit it big, finally, uh, in, in Texas. Uh, but the, their story and Patilla Higgins' story is very much about uh, opposing John D. Rockefeller. Uh, in Higgins' case, of course, he's also looking for financial support. He's finding it very difficult to, to generate that kind of support. Uh, and he writes Rockefeller. And as you say, Rockefeller says, my geologists don't believe uh, there's significant oil out there. Uh, and in fact, uh, another standard executive will joke that he would drink every gallon of oil uh, west of the Mississippi. And that's how sure he was it didn't exist. Uh, and uh, in his own folk means, uh, Patilla Higgins is going to prove Rockefeller and, and Standard Oil's men uh, wrong and, and is going to discover it. Uh, and again, he's, he's one of, of countless who are, uh, you know, are kind of applying their own kind of spiritual 
devices, doodlebugs. They're they're searching for oil in in highly spiritualist ways, ways that were not as scientific as as Rockefeller and uh, some of uh, standard geologists were applying at that juncture. But uh, surprisingly, uh, these folk methods of looking for oil would continue to uh, succeed on 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 a number of bases right through the first few decades of the 20th century. And, and Higgins again is is one who is is willing and able to apply uh, those those uh, tools of the trade, really, to, to the hunt for oil. I want to take, uh, take us back to the Civil War. Uh, I had not thought of oil in America, certainly not oil and, and religion, um, as going back to the Civil War, but I'm, I'm looking at a photograph. Oil derricks on uh, Occupy the Slope of Pioneer Run near Titusville, Pennsylvania, 1865, and it's, it's, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's, a, yeah. it's, a, it's a messy scene, oil derricks and, <laughs> and sure shanties and, and such. And um, uh, so discovery of uh, oil around the Civil War, and you're saying the, this intersection of uh, uh, religious overlays here goes back to the very beginning. Right. Uh, and again, this is I hadn't intended to go all the way back to the beginning of oil, uh, 1859, its discovery in western Pennsylvania. Uh, I thought I would start, uh, you know, around the 1890s, uh, 1900, with the discovery of Spindletop. But the more uh, research I did, uh, the more really fascinated I became with with oil's origins in this country, uh, occurring at a crisis moment uh, in the nation, of course. Uh, and I think it's it's for that reason, uh, the discovery of oil during the war, the importance it's going to immediately play economically for the North, especially in its fight with the South, uh, and then subsequently the ways in which the nation itself is going to reimagine uh, itself and its place in the world, its identity after the Civil War as it modernizes and industrializes. Uh, and turns its uh, gaze globally, uh, oil will be, uh, again, mythologized in a way uh, that no other material, raw material, will. And I think, again, that has to do with uh, the, the ways in which oil strikes the imagination, uh, strikes the theological imagination uh, of what America can be, uh, that really is, is kind of that blend of, of, of religion and, and, and oil that is going to fuse itself in the American uh, mind and, and be an imprint, really, on the American soul uh, for the century and a half that follows. Uh, oil is, discovery of oil certainly is dramatic, right? It's uh, it, it, right, right. It, this popular conception and certainly was reality, uh, uh, this natural resource gushing up from the, from the earth. So that, that's the dramatic, dramatic scenes. Uh, how does that uh, fire the religious imagination? Well, uh, again, you know, and, and, and your, your point exactly, I think, uh, what is different about oil than, let's say, coal? Uh, coal certainly strikes the imagination of, of uh, nation-building. Uh, it does certainly for Britain uh, in the 19th century, and, and that, too, is attached uh, to narratives of divine destiny, of divine blessing. Uh, so in that way, becomes religious, becomes theologized. Uh, but oil does that for the United States in a way that is... Uh, I think unprecedented, and, and and that has to do, as you say, with the spectacular and surprising arrival of oil. Uh, oil geology uh, is going to take a while to to produce a science that can predict where oil will be and when it will arrive. Uh, and so this this again, in its own way, uh, certainly. Uh, sparks the, the curiosity 
uh, of, of oil hunters. And, and when it's arrived, of course, when oil is struck uh, with, with great significance and, and gushing, uh, the scene itself uh, elicits, uh, you know, uh, visions of the supernatural here, uh, the mysteries of, of the subterranean soil. Uh, so uh, oil is, I think, uh, its properties, the, the property itself, the, the, the ways in which it, it uh, appears is, uh, you know, in some ways, uh, evangelistic. It's 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 revivalistic. It's it, it strikes uh, something in the heart of Americans that is different from from any other resource. If you just joined us, we're talking with Darren Dochuk. He is a associate professor at uh, University of Notre Dame. His new book, fascinating book, Anointed with the Oil, How Christianity and Crude Made Modern America. Let's take a break. When we come back, I want to talk about how, uh, Darren Dochuk, you say that uh, these twin forces, uh, religion and uh, and oil, helped to make the 20th century the American century. We'll uh, explore that. And kind of two strains of uh, Christianity, uh, one envisioned by the Rockefellers, among others, uh, the, the big companies, and another strain that you call wildcat uh, Christianity. I want to talk about that as well, and some fascinating stories following this break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Utah Humanities, improving communities through ideas and action, online at utahhumanities.org. Everyone has a favorite author, actor, musician, or comedian. At All Things Considered, we don't just bring you the news of the day. We introduce you to the coolest people you thought you knew and learn what really makes them tick. What you hear might just surprise you. Join us every afternoon for All Things Considered from NPR News, conversations that connect. Join us for NPR's All Things Considered weekday afternoons at 3 here on Utah Public Radio. Are you looking for a way to make your nonprofit organization more visible to our statewide community? Utah Public Radio's community calendar highlights events across the state, including music concerts, live theater, classes, workshops, art shows, lectures, festivals, volunteer opportunities, and much, much more. Just check out upr.org and head to our community calendar page. There you'll find our user-friendly submission link and the submission guidelines. Thanks for joining us for Access Utah. We're talking about Christianity and Crude. In fact, the subtitle of the book, How Christianity and Crude Made Modern America, title of the book, Anointed with Oil. The author is uh, Darren Dochuk, prize-winning uh, historian. He uh, is at Notre Dame uh, University. Uh, so, Darren Dochuk, uh, you write uh, that the uh, allegorical power of petroleum is pretty potent, helped provide a narrative of American exceptionalism. And this intertwined with Christianity provided uh, powerful forces. Um, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that. Mm-hmm, sure. Uh, well, I use, for instance, uh, Henry Luce's you know declaration of, of uh, or a call for the American century, a new American century, uh, which comes in the early 1940s. Uh, he uh, delivers this famous. Uh, speech uh, in a number of locations, also publicizes, uh, publishes this piece uh, in his own magazine, uh, really calling for Americans to embrace their new leadership uh, in the globe, uh, in the world, uh, in, in global politics and global development, uh, and to see their charge as leaders uh, in international development uh, as, in many ways, God-ordained, something that is, is their blessing, uh, something that is also going to be their burden going forward. So Lucy 
in his own way kind of makes those linkages between um, matters and visions of faith uh, on, a, on an international ecumenical level, uh, fused with the, the power that oil especially uh, as a, as a generator of American influence in the world, uh, he fuses those two together. And, and so that, I think, is illustrative of the, big, the bigger story I tell, the ways in which, uh, of course, the Rockefellers most prominently uh, with Standard Oil, and then after 1911, uh, the offshoots of Standard, uh, the ways in which the Rockefellers are going to embody that kind of internationalist a vision linking their own beliefs in in uh, a social gospel of transformation of societal transformation, linking that to uh, their own uh, kind of corporate initiatives uh, in large oil uh, companies, uh, and also uh, you know make their business really uh, also uh, link it to. Uh, their vision for missions, global missions, pouring their monies, of course, their profits out of petroleum uh, into their various uh, kind of Christian endeavors uh, on a global scale. So that that is, you know, the story I tell that runs right through the 20th century. Uh, it's a story of oil-fueled kind of liberal internationalism uh, that is at the heart of mainline Protestantism uh, throughout uh, the course of the 20th century. So that's one strain that's obviously a very powerful force, but uh, equally powerful, and it's uh, and the, the, this strain is really having its moment uh, in our times and, and uh, times leading up. Uh, what you call wildcat Christianity? Tell me about that. Mm-hmm. Well, that's the that, that's the the branch uh, really that uh, is represented by Patil Higgins. Although Higgins, I would say, is is kind of an extreme form of that kind of this radical antinomian kind of libertarianism. Uh, but wildcat Christianity uh, grows out of the experience, professional, personal experience of uh, the small oil producers, the independent oilmen, as they would become known, uh, who, as I mentioned earlier, uh, are really driven out of the first oil patch uh, in western Pennsylvania uh, through the 1860s, 1870s, and 1880s. And so uh, they, of course, are very proud uh, of their ability to to hunt oil on their terms. Uh, The rule of capture is a unique uh, kind of mineral law uh, applied to the American scene, uh, which from the beginning allowed basically all uh, oil hunters to pursue this resource uh, fairly on, and, and also on their terms to compete for access to subterranean pools. Uh, when Rockefeller comes along, of course, he sees the chaos of the oil field. And as you mentioned, the images are, are quite striking of Pennsylvania oil fields at this time. Uh, there is kind of a, a, a chaotic uh, pursuit of this resource uh, drillers drilling beside one another, draining pools, and, and, and with it, the, the underground pressure that is needed. Uh, and so he consolidates and, of course, creates his monopoly. That forces uh, a majority of these small producers to the West, many of whom are devoutly evangelical, uh, many of whom, once they get to the West, are going to become even more uh, assertive in their brand of Christianity. I call wildcat Christianity really kind of a a radicalized evangelicalism, if you will, fiercely independent, uh, fiercely uh, oppositional to uh, what they they consider the large conglomerate of mainline Protestantism, the monopolism, and ultimately the secularism that they see embodied in Rockefeller's liberalism and liberal internationalism. Uh, And so 
through the first half of the 20th century as Texas uh, enjoys its gusher age from 1900 to 1940s, these independents are going to take root in that region. Uh, and because of their success in oil uh, and their ability now to compete with the Rockefeller uh, conglomerate, conglomerates, uh, are going to be able to kind of put their profits behind their own missionaries, put their profits behind their own types of churches. Uh, again, churches that are going to espouse uh, their libertarian gospel of, of personal salvation, uh, of personal encounter with an active creator, uh, and of course, uh, all the other conservative uh, kind of dogmas that come along with that, belief in one's ability to read scripture on one's own terms, for instance. So that's what I mean by wildcat Christianity, and, and that is going to, uh, again, as I say, enjoy its influence throughout the 20th century. There's going to be political uh, outgrowths of that that are going to be quite pivotal for America throughout the 20th century. And uh, as you say, I think we are seeing uh, a moment when kind of the wildcatters of the day, wildcat Christianity of Texas and Oklahoma, are in some ways uh, winning the day. I want to quote you. Uh, I think you say this very, very well here. Um, talking about uh, the wildcatters, there amid boom-bust cycles, Christians are attuned to a messianic time that promises cycles of societal rupture in advance of Christ's sudden salvific return, which is why the hunt for petroleum in these regions always transpires with an end-times feel. Amid jungles of derricks and refining fires, risk-filled labor and violent swings of fortune, oil-patch Christians embrace a cataclysmic view of here and now, and of life beyond, as well as a dependency on an all-powerful being who gives and takes and tests his people, but is always there. Um, I, I think very well said. Um, I, I wonder which comes first. Is it uh, is it this this economic maelstrom in, in which these uh, people are are living that informs their brand of Christianity, or vice versa? Mm-hmm. Right. No, that's a good question, and, and uh, perhaps I'm a little vague on that point. Uh, I'm, I'm, uh, as a historian, I'm, I'm quite comfortable with the gray areas. Uh, what I do try to show, I think, is, is just how these two work together organically, uh, whichever comes first. I think certainly what I'm trying to show is that uh, in addition, of course, to the wildcatters, those residents of oil patches uh, see uh, the world in quite different terms. Uh, they're, again, attuned to these boom-bust cycles. Uh, the economic challenges and the, the bloody, bloodiness and, and the tragedy that comes along with work in an oil patch always, uh, again, you know, do, doing damage to, to the human body and to, to communities. Uh, that is, at very least, going to provide a context in which they're going to uh, search out theological answers, uh, and they're going to find them in a particular, again, uh, kind of premillennialist uh, dispensational understanding of the world, uh, whether or not they had adhered to the, the specifics of that doctrine, uh, again, uh, are, are always living in, in a moment, uh, sensing crisis around the corner, uh, and looking to a God who can, they, they can depend on, of course, uh, for meaning and for uh, help uh, throughout their, their times of trial. You point out uh, very interestingly uh, to me that uh, this perhaps is not limited to Christianity. Um, quoting you, perhaps Oman and Odessa, Texas are not as different as American oil patch residents would like to believe. Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess an outlook which is connected <laughs> to, to this, uh, this kind of uh, wildcat mentality? 
Yes, and, and that was, of course, just suggestive. I've, I've actually thought of perhaps a, a brief follow-up book on, on more of a kind of global comparative uh, angle to this. Uh, you know, to what degree does petrocapitalism, uh, does, does uh, oil itself, uh, the structures of oil, the ways in which it creates a certain type of local culture, uh, the ways in which uh, people in the oil patches have this sense of time of the here and now and the life thereafter, uh, the way in which they embrace uh, belief in an omnipotent, all-powerful God. Uh, those are kind of universal traits that I have seen in other oil patches, whether it is in uh, Oman, as I say, Saudi Arabia to some degree, Indonesia, uh, Norway. Uh, these oil patches tend to be uh, conservative, uh, whether in their Muslim faiths or in their Christianity. Uh, and so I think there is room to, to you know, make those comparisons and those linkages, and perhaps going forward I will do so. Uh, but, but yes, that was the, uh, the suggestive kind of takeaway that uh, I offer there. Uh, yeah, that'll be very much worth pursuing. If you just joined us, uh, Darren Dochuk, uh, prize-winning historian, is with us. His new book is Anointed with Oil, How Christianity and Crude Made Modern America. Um, I wonder if we could take a couple of uh, figures and uh, illustrate these uh, these themes further. Uh, John D. Rockefeller Jr. Um, and Lyman Stewart. Right. Well, they, uh, of course, contemporaries of one another, although Stewart is uh, a little older. I guess Stewart would be more contemporary with John D. Rockefeller Sr. Uh, Stewart, let me start with him, first of all, uh, because he really does embody this this kind of a wildcat Christianity uh, and is very influential in, in shaping the institutional structures that will support this. Uh, this, is a, this is a case where Lyman Stewart uh, started in the oil business right at its beginning in the 1860s. He grew up uh, near Titusville, Pennsylvania, where oil was first struck in 1859. So he was immediately taken with this industry. And after the Civil War, after fighting in the Civil War, as so many uh, veterans, he returned to this region and decided that he was going to make a living uh, in pursuit of oil. Uh, actually, initially, he thought he would uh, work in oil just for a short time and then use his money to support himself as a missionary. But as he got more invested in the industry, uh, he saw what he could do with his oil profits. Uh, he could support his church at home, uh, and he could really fashion a business enterprise uh, that would allow him uh, to kind of sell his gospel, uh, his faith, his evangelical faith, uh, even more widely than he could as a missionary. But he is... Uh, ultimately going to come uh, in, in, in uh, a clash uh, with John D. Rockefeller Sr. Uh, he's going to be one of those small producers that is going to uh, oppose, vigorously oppose Rockefeller uh, and oppose Rockefeller's emerging kind of liberal Protestantism. Uh, but he's going to be forced out of Pennsylvania. He moves to Southern California, uh, and there he starts Union Oil, uh, which is, of course, still uh, around today, and uh, will also use his profits uh, from this uh, independent oil company uh, to build a large church, uh, to fund uh, a Bible college, uh, and to fund missionaries abroad. Uh, and he is going to be determined to shore up, really, the conservative, or as he would call it at that point, the fundamentals of the faith, uh, those, those essential doctrines of conservative evangelicalism that he sees being shredded away by 
the Rockefeller monopoly, both in business and the church. So Lyman Stewart is really going to be uh, crucial to the story. Uh, he is going to fund, for instance, the publication of uh, The Fundamentals in 1915. This is a series of, of essays and pamphlets that will be distributed to pastors, to, to other evangelicals around the country, that will really defend the essentials of the faith. And of course, those who will adhere to them will thereafter be known as fundamentalists. So, uh, and, and he will pass away uh, in the early 1920s, uh, but not before he has helped really establish the institutional structure of, of wildcat Christianity, of, of conservative evangelicalism. He will also, of course, be instrumental in the fight, the political fight against standard that will culminate in the 1911 Supreme Court ruling uh, uh, demanding the dissolution of this monopoly. So that's Lyman Stewart, and John D. Rockefeller Jr. is going to emerge uh, at this point uh, in the 19-teens, especially out of the shadow of his father, uh, and he will uh, recognize uh, quite early that he is not cut out uh, to, to head the business as, as his father is. Instead, he decides he wants to become the, the chief philanthropist, uh, and through the 19-teens, he's going to help shape the Rockefeller Foundation, pour uh, the monies, the profits of uh, his family, of, of his oil uh, family, into a vast network of, of uh, charitable causes, uh, turning to science and medicine. Uh, unlike Lyman Stewart, he embraces kind of a post-millennial view of the world. He believes confidence, has confidence in human ability to usher in the new millennium of Christ's rule uh, through human endeavor by, again, applying uh, economic wherewithal, applying political power uh, to the uplift of humanity on an international scale. So uh, he's going to have a very different worldview uh, than Lyman Stewart, and in that sense really, again, represent and embody uh, this civil religion of crude, as I call it, in opposition to wildcat Christianity. That's interesting to, to trace those uh, those opposing forces uh, back, and and these uh, uh, cultural and and political and economic fights uh, continue to today. Uh, they sure do, and and uh, you know, I, I, again, as I track this this tension through the 20th century, I'm struck by the. The, the number of key political pivots that occur uh, largely as, as, a, as a result of, of this competition between kind of big oil, major oil, uh, and the uh, attending kind of vision, Christian vision that is attached to that uh, with the uh, work of independence uh, in the Southwest and, and their own kind of wildcat Christianity. Uh, for instance, I, I mentioned uh, the fight over the Tidelands, uh, which takes place in the late 40s, early 1950s. Not a story that is usually foregrounded uh, in our understanding of the political transformation of the South, but one that I think should. Uh, and that, of course, results when uh, Truman, President Truman uh, decides in, in the mid-40s that uh, it's uh, control, that Washington should be in control of offshore uh, reserves uh, in the Gulf, but also uh, along California's coast as well. Prior to this point, even though oil hadn't really been discovered in the Gulf, uh, oilmen were starting to explore it offshore, uh, and by leasing that land out to them, leasing that terrain, that that those waters, uh, the states of Texas and Louisiana, for instance, were bringing in uh, a, a high number of, of dollars that they could pour into public education and so forth. So when Truman says, no, this is federal land, this results in a, in a, in a bitter fight. Uh, and of course, at the center of it, it's going to be independent oilmen who are going to demand uh, their rights to 
to this this offshore oil, uh, and the states themselves, of course, are going to lead that fight. Uh, and thanks to uh, independent oilmen, thanks to preachers like Billy Graham, uh, they are going to ultimately win this fight uh, by getting their man elected in 1952, and that is President Eisenhower, of course, uh, who is going to defend states' rights to offshore oil. So in some ways, we can look at that as, as yet one key pivot, uh, the turn of the South to the Republican Party, uh, and that just is going to continue throughout 1964, of course, which I highlight. I think it's uh, not insignificant that it's Nelson Rockefeller who is r- running uh, to lead the Republican Party. Uh, and his opposition, of course, is going to be Barry Goldwater, who is going to be the candidate that represents the independence of the Southwest. The independence in that moment will win the day, and the Republican Party will ultimately start turning towards kind of the, the wildcatters of the West, uh, culminating in Ronald Reagan in 1980. We're still, I think, living with that today, uh, and I certainly could go on uh, about current politics, I think, of, you know, Donald Trump's uh, America First uh, energy policy is one that uh, harkens back to Ronald Reagan. Uh, Reagan in 1980 toured the Southwest and, of course, at that moment uh, declared uh, an America First energy policy that was going to give priority to the work that independents were doing on domestic soil to deregulate, to allow these independents to to make America energy uh, independent, uh, really, of, of foreign oil. Uh, and the language that, uh, you know, Mike Pence and, and Donald Trump are using, the ways in which they are encouraging the deregulation of Western lands, all of this is, is, is very much playing to the political, economic, and cultural interests uh, of the independence of the Southwest. I want to uh, take a break. I want to talk, uh, jump into environmental movement, which has you know, religious underpinnings as well, at least in, in part. But I wonder, before we do that, I wonder if you, we have very serious divisions, obviously, cultural and political, uh, economic. I wonder if understanding, um, I guess uh, it's helping me to understand, um, you know, oil men, especially the, the wildcat variety, um, you, you don't talk just about jobs. That's how we tend to frame it, I think. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. jobs. It's not just jobs, right? It's it's culture. It's religion. It's all intertwined. Um, right, right. On that side, and well, also the environment as well. Yeah, for sure. No, and, and that's, you know, that's, I, I hope, is a major takeaway here. And, and as much as I'm pitting these two sides against each other, uh, of course, both sides are 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 heavily invested in oil uh and and that investment as you say is not merely economic it's not just about jobs uh it really is built into the dna uh but that is particularly i think crucial and important for understanding uh independent oil men uh, for understanding residents of oil patches uh and and you know again trying to show that in sympathetic light the ways in which it's not just about work uh, routines, but within that energy regime, living in proximity to it, uh, the way people worship, uh, the way people play, the way they view the world uh, is all very much uh, entwined with that one raw material of crude oil. And it occurs to me, I'm, I'm thinking of the word radical, which is thrown around a lot, um, you know, in, in, where we, where in mm. points of conflict, uh, area where I grew up. Um, the, that uh, you know that the 
citizens of an oil town will call the environmentalists radicals. That's an epithet mm-hmm. they'll throw around. And similarly, the, the environmentalists, maybe they won't use that particular word, but that's what they mean. You're, you're unreasonable. You're radical. Um, and I, mm-hmm. I think that you, could all, you could substitute for the word radical a deeply held belief. Couldn't you? Mm-hmm. <laughs> this, this is right. cultural, no, and a, economic, right. and political. A, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a very good point. And and I mean, here I I just used the term a little bit ago, radical. Uh, in that case, uh, to emphasize the intensity of of beliefs that are held by many of my subjects. Uh, but you're right; that is a loaded term. It's it's one that's weaponized, that's politicized, and and uh, really used to discredit uh, those on the opposing side, whether they're the environmentalists or uh, those who are champions of of, of oil. Uh, so yes, I think that's a, that is a good term, uh, a good uh, caution there, uh, and uh, uh, but certainly the way I, I have applied it in my work is is to underscore intensity of belief. Uh, let's uh, take another break. When we come back, more with Darren Docek. He is author of Anointed with Oil, How Christianity and Crude Made Modern America. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the Cash Grand Fondo bike ride highlighting Cash Valley and finishing in North Logan at the same location as a tour of Utah on July 13th. Details on registration available at cashgrandfondo.com. Over the Memorial Day weekend, Tyler Riggs and David Fawcett came into the UPR studio to talk, to listen, and hopefully to bridge the current cultural and political divide. Both heartily recommended one small step we can all take. We need to learn, I think, as a society to just get along better. Invite your neighbors over to a barbecue that have completely different beliefs than you. We've got to start having the barbecues. I need to reach out to people in starting in the neighborhood that I don't talk to and get to know them. And you don't have to become best friends, but you should find some element of common ground. If you'd like to participate, go to upr.org and sign up for StoryCorps' One Small Step. On the next Putumayo World Music Hour, we'll hear from some famous fathers and their musical offspring, Bob and Damian Marley, Zhao and Bebel Gilberto, and more. There could never be a father loved his daughter more than I love you. I'm Dan Storper. And I'm Rosalie Howard. Join us for All in the Family, a Father's Day special on the next Putumayo World Music Hour. Join us Friday night at 10 on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. We're talking with the prize-winning historian Darren Dochuk. His new book is Anointed with Oil, How Christianity and Crude Made Modern America. Darren Dochuk is associate professor at Notre Dame uh, University. Um, so, Darren Dochuk, we, we uh, began talking about um, religion and environment, and uh, I want to have you talk a little bit about uh, maybe the other side of that uh, equation, uh-huh. The environmental movement certainly uh, increasingly um, has been, and now increasingly environmentalists are invoking religious faith. Mm-hmm. Right, for sure. And, and uh, this was a thread that runs through the book, uh, one that I enjoyed writing about. Uh, there are some fascinating characters uh, you know, associated with that as well. And it also, I think, complicates the story, uh, certainly the dominant 
kind of narrative is is this competition, this tension uh, between major oil and independence between civil religion of crude and wildcat Christianity. But throughout, uh, there are many Americans who are equally passionate uh, in their faith and equally passionate uh, in in their view of oil uh, as destructive in many ways to humanity, to American society. Uh, and so uh, woven into the kind of the fabric of anti-oil oil activism is, again, an alternative theology of land care uh, that makes its way through uh, different intellectuals and different activists. Uh, I spend considerable time early on in the book with, with uh, a character that I find absolutely fascinating and important, and that's uh, Ida Tarbell. Uh, we, we know generally of what she did as, as, a, as a journalist. Of course, she wrote a, a scathing uh, significant uh, treatise on John D. Rockefeller, Standard Oil, uh, and really showing how he was destroying uh, free markets and destroying the livelihoods of small oil producers. Uh, her father was one of them, and she saw the damage uh, that Rockefeller did to him, and, and, and that cost was very personal uh, and very weighty. And so she decided to take down Standard Oil, which she did. Uh, but what we don't know as much about, I think, is the degree to which this this young woman trained in Methodism uh, at the Chautauqua Institute uh, got her start in this kind of uh, anti-oil activism uh, by way of the church and by way of her own wrestling uh, with her belief uh, with God. Uh, she will eventually be, become more of a Quaker in her outlook, uh, but nevertheless view her writing and her work as an activist on behalf of, of a fair uh, economy, uh, really through, through her own theological lens. So, uh, and that, that's carried through throughout the 20th century, if we want to understand even to a degree Bill McKibben today, of course, one of the most active uh, environmentalists. Uh, he too, you know, jokes uh, uh, about his his own work as a Methodist Sunday school teacher, this is kind of how he approaches his environmental activism, uh, and so right to the present day, there there is that that thread running through uh, this this movement, and uh, even on the oil patch, uh, we see young people young people growing up in churches uh, that are quite conservative that have in the last decade. Uh, you know, protested pipelines and have joined McKibben's organization, uh, in, in, have uh, in, enlisted in, in uh, movements like Sojourners, uh, which is a progressive evangelical association. Uh, so that there's ways in which, again, the, the, the story of religion and oil uh, is, is framed differently, but equally powerful uh, in equally powerful ways uh, for those who have, uh, are questioning this, this resource and at least questioning its, its absolute hold on American society. I'd like to uh, have you treat the other side uh, to help us understand a little better the intersection of uh, religious belief and view of the land, view of resources. Uh, so from the point of view of the wildcat Christians, uh, the wildcatters, um, it's it, it resources God given. Is that what what they view? How how do they view the land and and the resources? This is the wildcat side. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, again, they they uh, see their ownership of land as as essential. That this is again rooted in their initial encounters uh, with oil uh, in the late 
19th, early 20th century. So yes, this is, this is a resource that is uh, gifted to them, that is gifted to Americans. It's a resource that they think uh, should continue to be, uh, again, essential to the American way of life. Uh, it's, of course, essential to their way of life. Uh, so they are, they are always and always have been hesitant uh, to uh, see uh, especially a, a federal government uh, being too persistent in, in regulating and, in their minds, uh, reducing their own abilities uh, to carve out their way of life, to carve out their living uh, through their free access uh, to uh, the West, especially natural resources. Uh, there is a certain, you know, there, there's, this, is not a, there's, this is not a reckless view. This is one that uh, also champions a certain stewardship of natural resources. Uh, but bottom line is they do not want uh, their own, again, ability to work the land on their terms uh, taken away from them. The, the fierce independence that's, uh, that's very much a heart, heart of their beliefs. Um, so it's, this phrase, end times, is interesting. Um, so environmentalists, um, they would tell you, many of them, that uh, it's a self-repelling prophecy. If we don't uh, slow down, we're going, to, we're going to create an end times for ourselves. Uh, what about the, the evangelicals? Um, mm-hmm. uh, and how that informs uh, these entrepreneurs out in the out in the oil field, uh, very much a, a end times view it permeates uh, actions and beliefs, does it not? And how how does that relate then to relationships with these resources? No, it sure does. And, and I mentioned the term, you know, premillennial dispensationalism, which is a, a specific doctrine that many evangelicals, a majority of evangelicals adhere to. And, and certainly uh, we see that uh, prevalent throughout the Southwest and throughout the oil patches. That is a belief uh, in contrary to postmillennialism, uh, which sees human ability as, uh, uh, as humans uh, being able to usher in the millennium uh, spoken of uh, in the Bible. Uh, premillennialists believe that the world is going to continue to slide into cataclysm, uh, that the world uh, is in decline. Humans have uh, really limited ability to change that or transform social structures. What is important, therefore, in this belief is to, to win personal, uh, to win over people to the gospel of Christ, uh, to save individuals before Christ's return. They see Christ's return, second coming, uh, as something that is going to happen suddenly uh, and probably soon, uh, and so time is short. How does that translate uh, into their work in the oil patches? Well, again, it it does so in a number of ways. First of all, there is always this urgency to uh, tap into America's natural resources uh, while uh, there is still time to do so, uh, to apply the riches of those natural resources to uh, enterprises that can save individuals before Christ's return. Uh, so there, there is a kind of a built-in urgency there. There's uh, a way in which the resources are seen purely functional uh, in, 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 in that way. Uh, the notion that we should be uh, saving these resources for future generations also doesn't necessarily register uh, within this worldview, uh, because in their eyes, time is short, and, and uh, we need to worry about the here and now, uh, not uh, generations down the road, which chances are will, will, will not exist anyway. So, I would have about five or six minutes left. Changing gears slightly, uh, um, another 
uh, turning point that uh, you emphasize. In fact, I'll quote you here. We can't properly understand the rise of evangelical right in the 1970s without foregrounding the energy crisis. I wonder if you could connect uh, that those dots. Right. Well, we have, you know, over the last 20 years, there's been numerous studies of the rise of the religious right. Uh, my first book, uh, attempted to do that as well by showing kind of the long view of political and religious development in California uh, from the 1930s to the 1970s. Uh, generally speaking, though, these studies focus on social issues, the issues of abortion, equal rights amendment, for instance, uh, in generating the rise of the religious right in response to uh, the kind of these new liberal values uh, of or liberal family values. Uh, and that's all of course, important, and we see that still very much front and center today. Abortion, of course, is continuing to generate uh, that kind of anxiety and also activism on the religious right. Uh, but I, I make the point that we, we can't forget about energy in this as well, and the energy crisis of the 1970s is going to be, I think, uh, essential to the rise of the religious right. Uh, you know, in, in a couple of ways. For instance, uh, uh, it's the energy crisis uh, that is going to bring to the forefront American worries of its uh, nation of this nation's dependency on foreign oil. Uh, where is that foreign oil coming from? Of course, Arab Muslim Arab nations. Uh, and so there's a way in which the America First energy uh, kind of uh, vision is going to step to the forefront now and really take root. Uh, there is a way in which independent oilmen in the Southwest, many of whom are devoutly evangelical, many of whom are going to fund uh, conservative political causes uh, tied to the religious right, uh, it's at this moment that they are going to step forward and say, we are here as patriotic Americans producing oil here on American terrain. We are the answer to the energy crisis. What we need from a federal government is uh, a loosening of restrictions and regulations so that we can work the land in that way. Uh, and so that's all tied into what I call this kind of fuel and family value politics of the late 1970s. Uh, and Ronald Reagan in opposition to Jimmy Carter, who, of course, uh, 40 years uh, July, from July 15th uh, gave his, his famous or infamous Malay speech, uh, which bemoaned America's dependency uh, on uh, oil. Uh, Ronald Reagan is going to campaign in 1980, 1980 and say, look, I will provide uh, defense of your uh, family values, but I will also ensure uh, defense of your energy uh, values, of your ability as independent oilmen here in the Southwest uh, to, to work the land and to, uh, again, help the nation itself uh, out of the energy crisis of the 1970s. So, uh, you know, besides the money that independent oilmen are going to supply the religious right, which is significant, uh, I, I think there's also a way in which their values and their interests are fused uh, in a way that we haven't uh, recognized before. We just have a couple of minutes left. I uh, want to end maybe with your your biggest takeaway, having spent a lot of time with uh, the, these intersections, what, what do you come away with the top top of mind? Well, I, I, I enjoyed writing this book, researching it. it took me a number of years, uh, but I can honestly say it, that, that there was uh, enough surprises along the way to, to keep me excited about it and, and really interested in it. Uh, I guess for me, and I, this goes back to your first question, I think the most interesting part of it, the most illuminating, uh, the one that touched me personally, again, was just trying to make 
better sense of, of how an oil patch is in its own way uh, or, 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 or nurtures its own kind of worldview, uh, one that filters through the pulpits and the pews of the churches of the oil patch. And again, uh, as someone who grew up in a conservative uh, religious environment in Alberta during the 1980s energy crisis, uh, that is something, again, I, I always knew intuitively. Uh, but through my research, I was allowed to dig into this, uh, also read more widely on energy studies, read more widely in oil and oil cultures, uh, and bring that to my, my uh, work as a historian of religion. So uh, I think it was, as, as usual, I think, as with my first book, the, the, the ties to region and, and the meanings of region, the meanings of land itself in the ways people form their own identities and community identities uh, was, was the most interesting to me. Uh, by the way, are the similar forces, I expect, uh, you just made reference to that uh, in Alberta, uh, are these similar uh, debates ongoing? And is, is there a, uh, um, a kind of a deregulatory movement uh, there as in the U.S.? Oh, very much. Uh, more heated than ever, uh, you know, with, with the various pipelines being delayed, Keystone and so forth. Uh, these are pipelines uh, that Alberta, Alberta's oil industry is, is absolutely dependent on. And, and so there's been growing frustration there, growing environmental protests, for instance, of the oil sands, the Athabasca oil sands. All of this is, is working against, uh, you know, Albertans who believe firmly and, and, and hold firmly to oil as the lifeblood, really, of that province. And, and in more ways than Texas or Oklahoma, Alberta really is attached to this one resource uh, is, if you will, cursed by that in a way, too, uh, in a degree that we don't see anywhere else. So, yes, the politics there have heated up once again. There was just a recent election which brought in a, a conservative premier who has vowed uh, to use every ounce of his being to, to protest and, and prevent uh, environmentalists from doing further damage to the oil industry up there. Uh, and again, that politics itself is taking on its own kind of uh, morally, its own moral tone and its own kind of religious fervency. Uh, and I think going forward, we're going to see more of that in Alberta. Well, uh, Darren Dochek is uh, Associate Professor of History at the University of Notre Dame. He was born and raised in Edmonton, Alberta. A previous uh, prize-winning book uh, from Bible Belt to Sun Belt, and the latest book, Anointed with Oil, How Christianity and Crude Made Modern America. Professor Dochek, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thanks, Tom. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the USU School of Applied Sciences, Technology, and Education, Agricultural Communicators of Tomorrow Chapter, provides members social and educational activities and networking with agricultural communication professionals. You're listening to Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSU FM Logan, and also heard at upr.org.